You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. If you look on the outline, you'll see some of the range of what we've talked about in the previous weeks. And that may help to set the context. We began with the lunch that Abraham put on for the Lord confirming the covenant. And then our second lesson was uh, Jesus being invited to a prominent Pharisee's home in which he turned the tables as host. Last week was on the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer, uh, Daily Bread. And today we talk about John 6, uh, which is the pivotal chapter in the Gospel of John, much like Matthew 16. Matthew 16, where the question is posed by Jesus, who do people say that I am? This is kind of the equivalent uh, center for the Gospel of John, John chapter 6. And I would say that, in a way, the message is summarized in this text box. We need real food to sustain our souls and live life to the full. Hunger, the literal physical need for food, is a pointer to an even greater need, a deeper hunger. When Jesus played the role of host to the giant crowd, he not only met their physical need for a meal, he used food and drink as a symbol of a far greater need. He insisted on a truth too deep for humanistic consumption, and everyone, including his closest disciples, struggled with what that meant. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Lord God, please help us now as we think together for the next uh, 30, 40 minutes. Please help us to understand your word in the spirit, not only for the sake of our own spiritual growth, but for the, the strength and the witness of you, to, around, of you in our lives to others. Together we give you thanks in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, to me, the outline is just sort of a guide that uh, can help or not, <laughs> um, and at least it gives you something to uh, take away with. Um, and I'd like to do something I don't normally do, and I'd like to, this comes toward the end of my chapter on real food in Table Grace, and I don't tend to read, but I want this sort of in your mind before I start, and then I'll feel very free with the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John bringing out what I feel is important from that chapter for us. The meaning and method of Jesus' communication defies any attempt to reduce it in human terms. The description offers no other interpretation than a miracle. Now, what we'll, we'll see three miracles. We'll see the miracle of the feeding of the multitude. 
and we'll see the miracle of Jesus walking across the Sea of Galilee. And the question will be, what is that third miracle? And I'm going to suggest to you that the third miracle is actually believing that Jesus is the real food. And that may be a much more difficult miracle than the feeding of the 5,000 or the walking on the water. Jesus feeds the multitude, walks on the sea, and claims to be the bread of life. And all three miracles shatter the notion of what is possible and offends an enlightenment rationality. Modern people don't accept these miracles. Skeptical commentators scramble for an explanation. John must mean that Jesus succeeded in challenging everyone to share their food with one another and that there was then more than enough bread to go around. They claim, the skeptical commentators, they claim that Jesus was walking on the, on the beach and not across the sea. It only looked like he was walking on water. And when Jesus said he was the bread from heaven, he must have been speaking figuratively. He must mean that his teaching and life example are food for thought. The Bible uses metaphor, story, narrative, and word to convey its message. Why stop there? Why not legend, myth, fairy tale? If we were to agree with the modern mindset in the nature alone science, we would be forced to join the ranks of the skeptical crowd listening to Jesus. And then we might conclude that feeding the multitude is a beautiful picture of humanitarianism. Walking on the sea is high drama. Eating flesh is only poetic license to make a point. After all is said and done, it really is only a morality play with special effects. The moral of the story is that we should care for one another, risk our lives in the adventure of life, and understand that there is more to living than food and drink. Why do we believe this episode in John's Gospel? Why do we believe it's true? Why do we believe that Jesus literally and miraculously fed the multitude, and that he literally and miraculously walked on the sea, that he literally and miraculously is the bread of life. Unbelief may hide behind the moral of the story, but it can't do so for very long. If this story is mainly myth and legend, it's easier to accept these great values without it. But then maybe we're being asked to to believe and to believe is not easy. It's a work. Now, it's a special work. It's a work you can only do by grace. And just like Jesus said it was, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. And then he adds, this is the work of God, that you believe in him, whom he has sent. Now, that's my message. Now let's look at the chapter. 
I sometimes am envious of my son who writes poetry and writes poetry books, and then he does readings at bookstores in uh, the Seattle area. And people come just to hear him read. I'll tell you, pastors can't read like that. But I wanted that said, and I wanted it said that way. Uh, chapter 6 is just a wonderfully crafted narrative text that blends event and message in the most powerful way. Uh, if it's simple, it's only simple on the surface. There's great depth here. John chapter 6, in verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. The Sea of Galilee is about the size of Washington, D.C., 64 square miles. It is about eight miles across. I had not seen it with my own eyes until 2015 when I went with a group of pastors um, at the host of an underwriter who allowed the 10 of us to um, be in uh, Israel for two weeks. And we spent a week in Galilee. And I so far preferred Galilee to Jerusalem because Galilee is not, uh, and Tiberias, the city there, is not nearly as developed. And you have a sense in which this is what it kind of looked like back in the day of Jesus. And uh, a lot, I mean, everything from where the Sermon on the Mount was preached to uh, breakfast on the beach, potentially with, uh, with the disciples. Uh, and so you can picture them, the people crossing the Sea of Galilee to, to meet up with Jesus. And on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, this uh, great uh, company of people seeking him out. Verse 2, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went on, went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, it's interesting, we, the next time we get the Passover is John 13 and uh, the upper room discourse. So maybe we're a year out from the uh, crucifixion. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand, and lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, why did he put it in financial terms? Isn't that sending Philip off in the wrong direction? Where can we buy bread so that these people may eat? And it wasn't, uh, how much money do you have, Philip? Or how much money can we pool together to buy bread for this massive crowd? It was, where can we buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now, what was in the mind of Jesus when he asked that question? And if you've been studying Isaiah for Lent, Isaiah 55 is going to be a passage that comes to mind. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Listen carefully. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he has no money. Come, buy and eat. 
Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Now, I'd suggest to you that Isaiah 55, 1 and 2 was in the mind of Jesus when he asked Philip the question, where can we go to buy bread? Because he's tapping into the prophecy of the coming of the anointed one who will provide real food and real drink without cost. Where can we go and buy bread? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, 200 denarii, 200 days wage. Last night I figured out how much I make per day. And I'm not going to say. But, don't, <laughs> um, but it's interesting. 200 days of that, that's a hefty amount of money. Uh, and that won't even begin to tackle this uh, large prop. I even contemplated uh, going on Google to see how much it would cost for Chick-fil-A to feed more than 5,000. And then I then I began to think, Doug, you're just wasting your time. Attend to the text. Um, 200 denarii would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. Now, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but What are they among so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now, again, if Isaiah 55 is our opening thought in Jesus's mind, the way he phrases the question, having the people sit down and Mark 6 tells us they sat down in groups of 100, having them on green grass spread out is a great reminder of the Israelites in the wilderness. He's gathering the people. Craig Blomberg, in his uh, book on, on biblical hospitality, makes much of the fact that this was, this was a really motley gang of people. Uh, this is now numbering in the thousands. And uh, there wasn't very much uh, concern for kosher, for clean and unclean. It would have been impossible to do that. Uh, this is all matter of society brought together. And this is in Galilee. So, yeah, there probably were Pharisees that were connected to the Capernaum synagogue where Jesus will end up doing most of his teaching in this chapter. But they will be a very small minority compared to the the masses. Here's the crowd, but the crowd's being organized. It's being set up as a people, not a crowd. Every church does good work when it transforms an audience into a congregation a crowd into a people. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Verse 11, Jesus then took these loaves, these five loaves and two fishes, and he takes these loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill... He told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up, filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Now, somebody asked me this week uh, over lunch, uh, because I have made much of the numerical symbolism in the book of Revelation the tens, the sevens, the twelves, the 144,000, the 1,000 years. And she asked, well, in John, in John, is there a symbolism for 5,000? 
Or should we be taking that as a literal number? Because John makes so much of a kind of numerology uh, throughout the book of Revelation. And I suggested to her that I know of no symbolism that stands behind the five or the 5,000 uh, in scripture. I take it as a, a literal number. It's in uh, the synoptics, it's 5,000 men. So this could be a much larger group uh, than 5,000 even. But I do take into account the symbolism of 12 baskets full. Uh, and again, the, the reminder of the Israelites in the wilderness and the 12 tribes and sort of like a basket for each uh, of abundance. Uh, and when the people saw the sign, when they saw the sign, John's loaded word for a message that behind, is behind the event when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And just for a very brief moment, reflect on the fact of the difference between performance and compassion, between meeting a crowd's felt need for entertainment versus a people's real need for food. And the church is in the business. I'm using the word business. Where would we go to buy this? I'm using the word uh, business in the sense that this is a responsibility that Jesus gives to the people of God to meet people's real physical need. And Jesus underscores. I mean, this is what we've been saying right along that there's a physical side to spirituality and a spiritual side to physicality, that we are not bodiless souls, but soulless bodies in community. And Jesus underscores that need of meeting people's real physical need. And the church, where it's, ever, where it's always been vital and vibrant, goes about doing that. Whether it's backpacks for the homeless, whether it's feeding people, whether it's doing medical care, whether it's setting up uh, networks through deacons so as to pay for heating bills or whatever. The church is in the business of doing that. But that's different, I think, from trying to entertain people, trying to attract them by impressing them with some type of event. Um, I wrote a book in the 80s, toward the end of the 80s, entitled Selling Jesus, What's Wrong with Marketing the Church? And uh, I would make a big difference between a kind of culturally induced commercial felt needs versus our own real physical and spiritual needs. But notice what Jesus does in verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And that's the danger, isn't it? The danger of meeting people's physical needs is, yeah, this is great. Uh, we'll sign you up. Uh, king for life. Uh, meeting our physical needs. But Jesus jumps the performance trap and doesn't get locked into that. When evening came, in verse 16, his disciples went down to the sea and got into a boat and started across the Sea of Capernaum. 
It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to him. Another name for the Sea of Capernaum, uh, which I find is interesting, is Kinneret. And Kinneret means violin, because to the Hebrew mind, uh, the Sea of Galilee seemed to be in the shape of a violin. Uh, Just an aside. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them, and the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. It was on the other side now of the Sea of Galilee, on the Capernaum side. This miracle is sort of between Jesus and the disciples, not between Jesus and the crowd. They will ask him about that, but he will not explain how he got to the other side. But I do think, and the reason I'm I'm pausing here is that Jesus does set the disciples up distinctively to hear more about what he means by this real food than the crowd had was privy to, and I think that that may be interesting. So verse 22, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. And other boats from Tiberias came near. They got into those boats. They came across. Verse 25, when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them. He really didn't answer them. He didn't answer their question. Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, any church that does a real good job with compassion and meeting humanitarian needs has to understand how to make this transition how to move from one to the other, how to move from the physical side of spirituality to the spiritual side of physicality. They have to understand how to share the gospel. Do not labor for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, What must we do to do the works of God. And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? And they themselves are getting this connection between Israel and the wilderness and the manna. And they say, Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, sir, give us this bread always. In much the same way that the woman at the well said, give me this water, this living water. In verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. So suddenly we've made a really sharp transition. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
But I said to you that you have seen me and you don't believe. And all that the Father gives me will come to me. Now here, verse 37 is absolutely critical. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And then in verse 44, reiterating what's said in verse 37, no one can come to me unless the Father has sent me. The Father who sent me draws him. And then again in verse 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. So, Jesus is emphasizing the truth that nobody's really going to make this transition from this physical provision of food and interpreting the sign. Nobody's going to make that transition apart from God working in their life to change their mind, change their heart, make this belief believable. Now, if you don't have that kind of confidence in the power of God to draw people, and that the reason people are drawn to this faith in Christ is because of the work of God, then I don't think you'd ever have the courage to make the transition, the courage to really share the gospel, to understand that you don't speak humanistically to convince people to believe. But that message is empowered by the grace of God, by the power of the Father, to draw people to himself. I don't think it could be clear in John 6 the credit that God gives to the Father to make this happen. And, as much, and this would not be to take away our sense of responsibility, our, our struggle, our wrestle, wrestling with the truth of what is said intellectually, of being able to grasp that. Um, we, and I, this is where I think science actually makes it more believable and not less believable. Because you take a wooden table, for example, and that seems like knock-on-wood density. But it actually... The physics of it is that it's filled with space. That there's more space in that table, in that atom, than there is matter. Now, I can't believe that. And I don't believe it in a literalistic sense. But the physicist says, yes, literalistically, there's more space in that block of wood than there is matter. And I think when you begin to grasp the nature of science and the nature of creation, it only makes it more believable, not less. So there is that human struggle over what is true and what is not true, what's believable and what's unbelievable. But here, Jesus gives credit to the Father, that it's the Father who draws. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. And now this is getting really thick. 
He's gone from the masses and feeding them to a smaller group in the Capernaum synagogue. And he's proclaiming. And the more he proclaims, the more impossible the message gets. The more difficult it gets to believe, the more challenging it is to listen to him. Because it's beginning to seem weird. And the people are beginning to think this is weird. Verse 41, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, don't grumble among yourselves. And again, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. He continues on the theme of describing who he is, uh, picking it up in verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness and they died. And this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him for the life of the world is my flesh. And the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said, and now he's brought it all the way down. This is not casual, this is intense. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I'll raise him up in the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, and the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also lives because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And he said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. And when many of the disciples heard this, they said, who can believe this? Who can accept this? So we've gone from the danger of performance with meeting people's compassionate, real, physical needs to using that bread as an analogy, as a metaphor for the real bread. Not to displace at all the physical need that we have, but to build on that physical need uh, an analogy, a redemptive analogy that points to the real bread that we need. All the while, Jesus has the confidence to be able to make that transition on the basis of the fact that the Father's at work here and the Father will draw people to himself. And it's not just based on their humanistic ability to, to swallow this analogy but to actually receive this message, this truth, and that he is the living bread of life. And he goes so far as to say what we say all the time in our Eucharistic celebration. Unless you eat this flesh and drink this blood, you have no life in you. And the disciples say, it's just too much. This is too much. And when many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It, you know, if this is hard to believe, 
what would it be like for you to see the ascension? To see the glory of the presence of God? This limited sort of flatline, horizontal, humanistic, that's just like a person back in ancient times thinking they lived on a flat plane instead of a globe, in a cosmos. In a cosmos where the vastness of it is just mind-boggling, and we're the only, as far as we know, living beings on this vast, vast, vast cosmos. It makes a personal creator and redeemer a lot more believable when you begin to see that vastness. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by my Father. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go as well? And this is what makes this chapter so pivotal in the Gospel of John, because Peter speaks up. You know, and it's Peter who speaks up in Matthew 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds, blessed Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And now he says here, Lord, to whom do we have to go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. You can't say it any clearer than that. God provides so much for us. The food and clothing and a wonderfully abundant creation. Uh, and there is enough food on the planet for everybody if it wasn't uh, curtailed politically and through corruption. God provides wonderfully, abundantly, powerfully. But if you and I don't come to this place... Lord, to whom do we have to go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. So we begin the, this, uh, this narrative um, scope being fed, sitting on a grassy hillside. But we end with a very small group. We've gone from multitudes down to twelve, and as Jesus says here at the end, and one of you is a betrayer. But we come to the point of worship. Where else do we have to go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. Amen? Lord, please continue to convince us of how much you love us in every way. Physically, emotionally, spiritually. And thank you, Lord, for your great provision of this living bread. And we, by uh, your grace, by the work of the Father, have come to believe that you are the Holy One of God. And we have no place else to go but you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.